America, Washington, D.C., signing on. Radio Contra, and I, of course, am your host, Commandante of the Mossy Oak Militia, and that is all of you, this Radio Contra family out there. It is great to be with you once more from the great state of North Carolina, just a little bit over a week out before getting into the classes in wyoming so if you are in the western states and you are wanting training particularly rto advanced rto and the signals intelligence course you need to get on it shoot me an email asap if you want to get registered into that class i've got a couple of slots left however with that said i am joined by a guest i had an incredible amount of feedback in the last interview that I did with him. And uh, it was so much positive feedback. I even had one guy who uh, has been a, a longtime student of mine. And he said, you better get that guy back on as frequently as possible because he is the best guest that you have ever had. Um, and I took that to heart. I took that to heart. Uh, so, without further ado, I have got on Mr. Mark J. O'Connor, the author of Electronic Warfare for the Fourth G Generation Practitioner, which you can find over on Small Wars Journal, a guy who is an expert in Fourth Generation Warfare and a guy that I thoroughly enjoyed talking to somebody that I consider to be an intellectual equal. Sir, it is great to have you on. Uh, thank you again for having me on the show. It's really great to be here, and I've really been looking forward to this. I thought we had a great uh, show uh, discussion last time, and I really look forward to this. I have been. Absolutely, brother. Absolutely. So one of the things, just diving right into it, one of the things that we talked about in the last episode was it's kind of a prediction, a threat model, if you will, you know, you being a, a military intelligence professional yourself um, and me being a, a former intelligence collector uh, in, in a long range surveillance unit myself and, and knowing the process, being familiar with with the collection process of the, you know, on that end of things, you know, doing a little bit of predictive analysis talking about how yes the united states is indeed locked in a fourth generation warfare conflict here domestically and that one of the things if we can draw a parallel to previous wars of this type insurrections of this type and what have you uh that one of the things that, that we could absolutely predict was the kneecapping of judges uh the italian red brigades that was uh, the, the 1960s, 1970s communist insurgents in, in the post-war Italy. Um, one of the targets of Operation Gladio, of course, they followed a particular model and they attacked judges specifically. They attacked the judiciary. They attacked the judicial system itself because it was the last line of legitimacy of government. 
And that is a very interesting uh, point that we had made in that previous episode. And lo and behold, just a few weeks removed from that episode, we have a judge murdered. And uh, even though he was a state level judge, we have some pretty, you know, that's pretty serious implications uh his murderer his assassin had other political motives he had other politicians that were on his list but we also now have have an actual credible threat against a supreme court justice in the way of brett kavanaugh Uh, brett kavanaugh had a would-be assailant that flew to uh, the D.C. area, the Northern Virginia area, he had mapped out the location. So he had done a little bit of a, a pre-target surveillance and, and pre-target reconnaissance. Um, he had weapons. He did have a firearm and he was rolled up. He has been charged with attempted murder. Uh, um, and, you know, but but we have this group out there. Ruth sent us, which is a left wing group, of course, is owed to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And they are openly advocating for violence. And we are not hearing anything come out of the mainstream left establishment decrying this, denying this, telling people to calm down, cool it with the rhetoric, any of that. We're not hearing any of that stuff. Whereas on the right, would things have been similar and and were in some instances? immediately you had this gigantic public outcry. Uh, Mr. O'Connor, what is your thoughts on this? What is your response to this, uh, if you you will? Uh, So when we look at like a low intensity conflict or, you know, the preconditions or the early conditions of an insurgency, uh, you know, there is escalation of force kinetically, non-kinetically, you know, rhetoric. So we should expect that persons will be emboldened through what is this 15, 20 years of, you know, leftist agitation. Uh, and uh, we should not be surprised that an unpopular uh, Supreme Court decision will attract people who wish to engage, you know, kinetically with a, you know, a member of the federal judiciary, the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, because part of an insurgency is to delegitimize the government and here somebody is you know, going to delegitimize the government uh, through perhaps some kinetic action. So on one hand, it's unfortunate. On the other hand, it's just not surprising. Uh, You know, the federal judiciary or the judiciary of any incumbent incumbent elected government is always like going to be targeted by insurgents. We saw that, like you mentioned, in the Red Brigades in Italy. I think that was also the case with the FARC in Colombia. It's just what is done because the judiciary is one of those legs of government. And, uh, you know, if they are exposed and they make an unpopular decision, somebody's going to, somebody's going to go after them. So we have the gentleman who went after him, you know, to, uh, perhaps, you know, homicide him. And then we have, you know, the protests outside their houses as well, which is another part of conflict. I would like people to get across that propaganda is like 80% of insurgency. And there you have protests outside the uh, federal uh, Supreme Court justices who that that's part of it. So, uh, you know, that's that's where we're going. It's an escalation. And, you know, if I was doing in some or something like that, I would say, you know, this is another indicator that there is conflict, uh, you know, escalating and, uh, you know, make sure the commander is aware that that's part of a continuum. And uh, here we are. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to revisit something that you just pointed out. That propaganda is 80% of the insurgency. So we had very openly advocating uh, or, or an advocation of protesting outside of Supreme Court justices' homes. And that was coming on part of the leftist leadership in both houses of Congress. We also had, you know, basically silence or, or mostly silence from the White House press secretary, uh, Jen Psaki at the t- time that wasn't going to decry this and said, well, you know, essentially to the effect that pe- people have a right to, to express their opinions. Well, that may be true, but there, there's also such a thing as harassing and in- intimidating the judiciary, which is exactly what happened. 
and we all know that if the roles were reversed, exactly what this would become. Uh, if we contrast that with the the situation with Patriot Front, which unfolded uh, uh, just earlier, where they were essentially organizing a counter protest to a uh, Pride Month event in uh, Boise, Idaho, and they were arrested immediately. Uh, they were arrested immediately. Now, there there are a number of irregularities with that. There's there's a lot of suspicions that I have with Patriot Front. Uh, um, there there's there there are more questions that I have answers out out of that organization. However, with that said, it does the the example does serve to show us that if if any sort of meaningful organization happens on the right, that it's going to be immediately stomped down. This is this is differential treatment between the two political positions. And so to your point, 80 percent of of an insurgency is propaganda. That's absolutely true. And the message is deafening for both sides. What say you? Uh, yeah, definitely agree on part of the Patriot Front. I mean, of, of the two, they were, I guess, probably a, a little bit more easier to uh, contain through law enforcement action. And, you know, they don't want a conflict brewing between the far right and the far left. So it was kind of like, you know, you're you're a little easier to contain Patriot Front. So we're going to do that. And the anarchists and the pride, you know, the, the pride pride demonstrations have been part of the American landscape now for uh, decades. So it was just like, you know, Patriot Front was a low-hanging fruit to uh, prevent uh, a conflagration there, and that's what happened. But, you know, personally, I think Patriot Front, of all of, like, the sort of far-rightist groups, has, like, the best optics, the best direction. I mean, they're solidly on message, and they're not, and they they do, like, write things right. Uh, And in the background of that, they're working out, they're getting in mixed martial arts, and they're doing the right things right as a think uh, as a you know a political group who wants to achieve political and cultural end states. So I don't. So there's a lot of like sort of uh, Fed jacketing uh, Patriot Front. I don't think that Patriot Front is a federal operation. They probably have some informers in there because that's how that's how the FBI works. The secret police recruits informants. They've been doing that since you know there was police, but. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they were just the low-hanging fruit, and the police rounded them up, kettled them up so that they wouldn't uh, be too much of a problem there because, you know, at the end of the day, the, that town in Idaho just wants to go home and don't want any problems. Let them have their pride, and you do your thing over here, and that's basically that's basically it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you don't want – they don't want – so – between like groups like you have far left and far right groups, those are serious like friction uh, areas. And you know when they're together, I'm just waiting for one day when that'll just break out the gunfire. I'm not talking like some security guy shooting you know some three percenter. I'm thinking I'm thinking like really that there's going to be like another you know breed sale where there's going to be like a you know or I'm sorry a, you know uh, another uh, revolutionary war kind of uh, thing going on where there's just going to be some gunfire and then it's just going to, you know, once it goes kinetic like that, it has a real potential just to like really blossom very quickly. And I think the powers that be look at that and say, yeah, we can't have that and we have to do something. Sorry, Patriot Front, but you're the you're the low hanging fruit here. So with that said, there's a couple of uh, questions that I, I would dovetail onto that. Uh we could easily make the argument. So, so you said, you know, well, they, they've had Pride Day in the past. We just want to go home. You, you're exactly right. Uh, but at a certain point, we also know that there is there's a large swath of the population that's completely fed up with having this rammed down their throats over and over. And when you couple that with seeing differential treatment, where you know, for 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 good or bad, but that differential treatment. And and I agree completely with you when you say, you know, low hanging fruit and we're going to, you know, we're, we're this, this is just how it's going to be. Um, but simultaneously, when when you have differential treatment, wouldn't that just make it worse down the road? It certainly gives like a propagandist uh, some kind of material to uh, develop into propaganda. And I think, you know, it is the writing on the wall. It's, uh, you know, people will look at Patriot Front and see like, well, they keep... 
they keep rounding up the far rightists and the leftists keep getting all of this latitude. And, and um, you know, sooner, sooner or later, I think like whataboutism is going to become like, uh, no, we can't have any more of this. And, you know, that's, you know, that's going to be something, you know, right down the road, that's going to be something, something somebody's going to just, it, it's just going to animate the far right even more uh, that the Patriot Front got shut down. Online, there's a lot of sort of animus directed at Patriot Front. And I think there's a lot of like disinformation out there that's intentional to uh, shut them down. So it's, you know, if, if, you know, they're drawing fire, then that must mean that they're doing something right in this case. So, but yeah, down the road, it's just going to be, a, it's just another thing that's going towards conflict. We can't talk, but they have, you know, everything. So that's right. where we're at. So my, my second question to dovetail, to, to piggyback onto that central point is the hypothetical what if. So what if you were the coordinator, the ground force commander, the uh, what, you know, whatever term du jour we, we want to use. Um, if, if that were you, what steps would you take for, for organizations that may be waiting in the wings or local organization, which is what I encourage, uh, local local decentralized organization? Um, what 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 would you do to mitigate the positive identification, the aspects of, of them getting arrested and rolled up so quickly? Wow, that's a pretty big question with a lot of details to answer it but you know if we take a look at patriot front they wear like face gaiters and things like that and glasses to, to uh, cover up their their faces to prevent identification right um i think i think you know physical opsec methods like that are uh, good as well and you know once you've vetted members you know there should be like concentric circles of access so at the center, you would have your officers and then or people or the organizers, however they call themselves. And then, you know, like one ring removed, there would be like people that have been there for 18 months and have actually been vetted. And then on the outside of that are your new associates who are basically hangarounds. Now they have to be disciplined, right, because there's no there's no, you know, insurgency or there's no politics without uh, discipline. And then, you know, that's that would work as well. So we want to control human capital, the kind of people we're getting there. And when when we're vetting people, it's not you're not just looking at their driver's license and saying, yes, you are who you say you are. If vetting is a journey, not a destination. And. And you're doing that constantly. If this person is prone to bragging, you might not want to bring him too close to sensitive information. If this person is not good with money, that shows a person that. That shows a person who might have um, uh, maybe some decision making that isn't best for the organization. So it's it's a constant process of examining the behavior of your members and saying, yeah, they're going to have to stay out on the outer ring for a while until they like clean things up. And you don't necessarily want to like, you know, mentor them into that. You want them to behave naturally because that's going to be how you determine, you know, their accesses or if they become officers or leadership or organizers or propagandists or what have you. So it's not just technical skills they bring. It's great that you would that we, you know, an organization would have, you know, a great, uh, I don't know, propagandist, a great somebody who's really good with Photoshop. Um, but if they have poor behaviors, uh, then they are a security threat. And, you know, maybe they do some drugs on a side. I don't really care. Uh, but on the other hand, that's an attack surface that law enforcement would look at and say, well, we can turn we can roll that person into an informant if we bust them. And, um, you know, that's it, it is looking at those behaviors, not not with sort of like, a uh, you know, our over like our our morality, but rather what is good for the organization? Does how does this how can this person's behaviors be attacked by? Um, you know, a law enforcement recruiting pitch or a journalist or something like that and turn them into an informant. Um, so things like that. So like vetting people is very important. And I would say like Antifa has pretty good vetting procedures because like in Antifa, um, they have very strict ideological conformity, which is vital to an organization, a political organization, whereas the right is actually a little bit more diverse and open minded to like other ideas. And that's why the, you know, 
right becomes somewhat incoherent because they have really a, a lack of ideological coherency there and lack of ideological um, uh, conformity. And I know like the right's like, well, you know, I'm a free man, whatever. Yeah, but you're not a free man when you're in a, uh, a political warfare organization. You are part of a military organization that's there to deliver military effects. You're not there to uh, express yourself. You're there to deliver those effects and optics matter. That's correct. That's that's 100% correct. And and that is a position that I've tried to reinforce among dissident groups, the, the dissident right, you know, what have you, and, and brought it up again and again. That's one of the critical errors that the patriot movement in general made throughout the 1990s into the 2000s was it turned into a uh you know let, let's all be individuals i i can this is it's going to be a come as you are kind of deal and you know there's no discipline there's no coherency there is no, no consistency across the board and you know when, when you're speaking about the vetting process i mean immediately what comes to mind is sf86 audits so in, in case you know the listeners don't know what that is you have a security clearance review every so often when you are issued a security clearance by the United States government and they're going to audit it. And, and depending on your level of clearance, you're going to be audited. And, and these same behaviors that you're picking out are exactly the red flags they're looking for. Is this person a substance abuser? If they're a substance abuser, then that in some cases can get your security clearance suspended. You're definitely going to get a more close audit of your security clearance i mean and, and you know you and i are both very familiar with that process um, and probably both know people who lost their clearances over things like like bad credit or gambling addiction or a divorce even i i saw that i had one uh particular oh yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> oh yeah yeah, offshore banking is that's that's the number one surefire way. If you want to get that clearance yanked, uh, it's happening. I mean, instantaneously. Uh, so it, it's it, I mean, th there's all sorts of ways. And so throughout the 90s in, into the 2000s, you know, I hate to bring up a sore subject, but, uh, you know, beat that horse again. But but the Oath Keepers, it turned into a a lack of uh auditing a lack of vetting a lack of uh discipline and a number of things at the local most chapters i mean i saw that i saw it here in north carolina um and and it it i said you know what that's they, these guys some of them mean well their hearts are probably in the right place but they i have more questions than i have answers and just as you said there's a lot of talkers there was a lot of guys who when, when um, I w went to a, a couple of their things that, that were like kind of recruiting drives and th there were too many guys that were trying to sell me on themselves and not on the organization. And I said, uh, you know, this, this is a red flag and it, a lot of things were thin to me. And so, you know, you're, you're exactly right. And, and it's very, I want to add, it's very refreshing to hear somebody saying the same things uh out loud and saying Look, you know this this is the way you really do it not not the way you've been do doing because the way you've been doing got us to the point where we are now and if this is not you know we we're not in an end state here we're not in a place that's any better than we were in 30 years ago so we don't want to be there and we have to be politically active you know they, and, and i love that no policy Politics without discipline. I I absolutely love that phrase. Uh, um, oh man, I love that. Uh, that's what a what a great answer. Um, ah, it sh shifted gears. I hate to shift gears at all because what what, what uh, but I want to dive into something. Uh, your work specifically that you wrote about Small Wars Journal. Um, you know, and, and what, what, if three, uh, just over three years ago, what an incredible piece that you have up here. I mean, 
immediately linked to it on American Partisan. I've linked to it a couple of times since then. Uh, but electronic warfare for the fourth generation practitioner. And essentially what you broke down in this piece, which I think is just outstanding. Uh, what an outstanding piece of work. But you're breaking down electronic warfare at the guerrilla level, at the uh, insurgent level, at the politically active, the political organization level. And if you will, talk us through essentially your impetus for writing this piece and how this applies to our contemporary environment today. So uh, I think about like insurgency and politics a lot, and I have probably for 25 years when I first kind of became sort of politically oriented. So I'm always like thinking of ways to you know deliver effects because I'm a military man, and that's like what we do. We walk around saying, well, if this happens, we need to do this, or we need to you know get these effects into this area. And um, I'm thinking like you know area denial. So like my fantasy sort of um, insurgency takes place in Appalachistan, and um, I'm like, well, how do we, you know, how do you, if you let, how do you uh, control your, do your uh, area, area denial um, in like a mountainous terrain, like, um, you know, like Appalachia. And, uh, you know, cause if you, if you let, it's easy to say, we're going to put up checkpoints and roads. Yeah. That's kind of, that's basic. You're going to do that or you're not doing anything. Right. So checkpoints, roadblocks to control access to your area. And, the enemy, you know, the notional enemy is going to throw drones into that area to collect intelligence. That's what they're going to do there. And if you let them do that, they're, they are, you have less control over your area and you want to enforce more control. So how do we do that with drones? Well, we don't have any, in Appalachistan, we don't have any anti-aircraft weapons. Okay. We don't have any SAMs, nothing like that. You know, we don't have a 23-4, although we would like to buy one. And um, so what do we have? Well, we have electronics. We can jam the command and control so the enemy loses control of their resource. And we can block, and then we can jam the uh, intelligence feed so that it becomes yet less useful and it stops producing intelligence for the enemy. And maybe it would even go to ground. And so I was just like thinking about that. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, if you're going to do drones, you might as well do everything else that uses radios and wireless too, which is like everything, right? Everything has some kind of radio connection to it tactically. So looking at that from a guerrilla perspective and a do-it-yourself perspective, because uh, I am somewhat influenced by like John Robb's uh, Global Guerrillas, uh, you know, the, the step in doing that is to jam that system. So jamming is intentional interference, if you will. And that would involve research and some, you know, ready-made or some referencing some like military designs, like how did the military do it with like formally produced systems and how are people doing it now? For instance, like, um, you know, there's uh, the Ukraine's uh, Ukrainians have, I think a drone jammer locally produced. And so it's not real hard to build a, a jamming system. And there's like a diagram on that, just a block level diagram of what a simple jammer looks like. So the Ukrainians had a jammer, like even before the Russian special operation there, yeah, so that's being done. Um, I think some cartels and like Colombian uh, drug dealer types, uh, cart uh, whatever, uh, had jammers as well to block GPS tracking devices that might be on their vehicle. So there was like this sort of like nascent um, electronic warfare already being done, but it's not really warfare unless it's organized, right? Unless you're producing military effects to accomplish some objective. So that was how you know, that, that paper, uh, evolved. And I just began looking for more, the more I looked at the, our environment in the city, especially the more using some type of wireless countermeasure that is jamming was more and more a, a tactically useful, uh, thing for the gorilla to do. And I was surprised that it didn't catch on like more with gorillas, uh, and, you know, other insurgents. And I, think it will as well because there is a you know a forecast with that paper that somebody's going to say hey you know what we can do this thing and we can get like 20 percent more gain out of this operation if we you know implement some type of you know um, spectrum control using uh you know a jamming apparatus so that's what it was it started in appalachistan jamming drones and uh it's you know the, the end of that paper 
You there? Yeah, I'm here. Did okay. you hear me? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. I thought I lost you because the, the audio dropped out for just a second. Oh, gotcha. But outstanding. Uh, yeah, and, and <clears throat> you know, we, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of examples of this coming out of Ukraine. Um, of course, electronic warfare, and especially as you describe it and the, the battlefield relevance of it, um, you know, we kind of, America got its first shot across the bow, at least in, in a, um, in, in the, the dot mill world sense, when Iran captured one of our tier one drones. And they did that through electronic warfare. That was really the, the first shot across the bow and in and, and exactly what you're describing here and, and what you went into in your piece was that, that this is this is very much possible. And with, with some skill in electronics and understanding how RF works, how it actually works in practice, there's a heck of a lot that can be done there. Um, what would you say, and, and I love the term area denial, um, I know that, that your work focuses much on drones because drones are, are the most contemporary force multiplier, but let's pull that down to, to communications from the signals intelligence side, from the, uh, the communications intelligence side. Apply, apply your principles to that for us. So, you know, imagine that you're set up in an ambush or you're, you know, Appalachia stand guerrillas are set up in an ambush and they're going to ambush uh, security forces. That ambush would probably be more uh, effective or efficient, if you want to use that term, if they were unable to call for fire, call for help, call for backup, call for medevac, uh, all of that over wireless. And uh, so, you know, when you have tactical operations like that, if somebody was going on a raid, uh, you know, so you have this, you know, basically an attack with a programmed withdrawal, um, how much if it, more efficient would that be, like, for the first 10 seconds of the raid um, during that critical time when it, you know, goes loud that the the target, the OBJ, is unable to use their wireless systems to coordinate fires and personnel and then, you know, the wireless uh, or the jamming shuts off so that, you know, the, the raiding party can then, uh, you know, organize things as they want. So it's like 10, 15 seconds of jamming would produce more, a more efficient raid. And it would, you know, go and make it would, I think it would just make everything a little bit more efficient uh, and a little bit better because the, uh, you know, receiving end of the raid cannot effectively organize without wireless. So when that's done, then, you know, that's, that that happens and that could just be like a backpack uh system set up somewhere or even a larger system you know with some standoff and that's the other thing about like jamming is it, it permits a lot of standoff uh effects which is great because you know if you don't have to expose yourself to danger then don't so you set up your jammer you know you might have it on a remote control and then once it goes on remote control it begins jamming for 10 seconds and shuts itself off. I mean, all this is very doable. You could probably do this with a Raspberry Pi. Well, actually, you definitely could do this with a Raspberry Pi, uh, you know, for the control functionality of it. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it is a tactical effects multiplier, I think. And because it's low cost, um, it, it doesn't really drain a uh, insurgent group's resources that much uh to to maybe build one and use it it's not a terribly expensive piece of equipment so if it gets broken or captured well you're not really out anything but it gives you like 10 15 maybe 20 percent efficiency you know more of, of what you're of, of what a raid or an operation is going to provide so i think you know in the tactical sense uh that's like a little for, for force multiplier for the gorilla you know especially like in urban environments where you know we just there's there's, there's a lot of coordination there and it happens by radio. And if they can't do that, then the insurgent is uh, that much more effective, I think. 100%. Have you seen any examples of this domestically? So to be more specific, that, that's kind of a vague question. But with the riots that we've seen, the riots that were probably good, going to see you know we're, we're halfway through the month of june now and this summer hasn't really been as spicy as maybe we might have first predicted 
Um, but with that said, have you seen any specific examples in in some of the riots in the past of this very thing of of, of disruption? Negative. I have not read of any any you know domestic uses or uses in a riot anywhere. The only like real you know insurgent unconventional use of jamming that I read about was a South African farmer was attacked by some insurgents um, and they there's a picture of one of them from a video camera. They had a backpack uh, cell jammer so that the um, the bear farmer could not call for help. And obviously, if he couldn't call for help, it makes the operation a little bit more smooth. So there's a pretty good picture of right. that. And um, that's the only thing I've ever read of a of a like military unconventional operation employing uh, a jamming system like that. Well. With, with the riots, there, there have been some attacks on police systems and uh, emergency service systems. I, I know of one in Chicago uh, specifically that, that was a pretty well publicized incident um, where the repeaters were being jammed during uh, one of one of the riots. There's been too many to pick out specifically which one was. Um, there has been some examples of some of the others. I know Philadelphia has had their issues with the Philadelphia Police Department. Um, New York City Police Department back uh, two summers ago, they had an example of this as well. And, you know, your principles of area denial, th this was quite literally the same techniques that were being employed yet applied to an urban conflict. Um, and, and, and it was very fascinating to see how that all that broke down because the insurgents, the, the Antifa, BLM, um, you know, Sunrise, all, all of these groups, this, this loose conglomerate of, of uh, this confederation of different groups that, that have come together. Um, what they were doing, in essence, was jamming the law enforcement replaying segments of the communications themselves from the dispatcher to the responding units to enable a response somewhere where they had already been. And meanwhile, they were using that as a, as a diversionary measure. It was pretty effective. Um, you know, even though I, obviously I stand on the other side of the fence from all of that, I thought that it was a very genius measure that they had taken. How would you analyze that? So I'm unfamiliar with those cases, and now I'm going to uh, research them later. But, uh, you know, if that if that was actually like replay attacks, so when signals are captured and they're replayed, you see this like more in like unsecured I IT systems. So a replay like attack could cause uh, problem, uh, you know, would cause it would be disruptive because of the confusion it causes. And then, you know, the other part of that is psychological. So the, the legitimate user of those communications hears this and they say, is this a legitimate communication or is this the replay attack? So they lose confidence in those systems. And, you know, you know, we're former military men. You can't lose confidence in yourself, your men or your equipment. That's disastrous. And I think people can look at this and say, ah, yeah, I could see why a replay attack against you know, audio communication systems you know, would be so, you know, not necessarily devastating, but certainly contribute to the chaos. Because if you're, you know, the law enforcement element is trying to impose order and uh, they rely on a system now that is acting in a chaotic fashion. So, you know, broad picture, if you want to add exactly. chaos, if you if you have an, if you have a, a, an issue or a problem and you can introduce chaos into that system, uh, then it will no longer function as intended every piece is going its own way and it can no longer operate as a cohesive whole going in a unified direction kind of like the far right but yeah. <laughs> no, I, I don't disagree i don't disagree you know revisiting what your point about the psychological warfare aspect because in in the signals intelligence course that i teach i emphasize that and exactly what you pointed out, the losing of, of confidence in men, weapon, and equipment 
is incredibly detrimental. And and when you're talking about military, that's one thing. When you're talking about, and I've seen what that does at the military level when you lose confidence in your equipment, as well as your men and, and your weapon systems. But when when that happens to a volunteer organization, an organization, let's say a, a, a community defense group or um, you know a, a militia or whatever it is that you want to call call it, but something that's essentially uh, put together on a volunteer basis. That could absolutely destroy that organization, could it not? Oh yeah, absolutely, uh, definitely, because you know they can't communicate, so they can't. You know, we have to shoot, move, communicate, and if somebody takes away your communication, then you're shooting and moving on your own. You're acting crosswise to your your other elements, your adjacent elements, and and what have you, and you can't you can't coordinate. So yeah, I mean that that would be that would be pretty devastating. And I think, you know, for that reason, um, and I know you have components of like, you know, your communications plan, there should definitely be something in there. Like if we lose telecommunications completely, what do we do? That has, even if, even if it means making a tactical withdrawal, I think that would be better than trying to fight through something yep. working crossways to each other, because that's just going to result in fratricide. And um, I don't think that's a good, I don't think that's a good look. Um, so you know, there has to be like some kind of contingency or part of the communications plan. If we lose telecommunications, like from jamming, then we have to do this. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when I bring this up in class and, and I do in, in the RTO course, I, I approach it exactly from that way. A lot of students out there have heard me say this. Uh, everybody that's been in the RTO course has heard me say this. When you lose you know, where communications follow a pace plan, so primary, alternate, contingency, and emergency. When you lose primary and alternate and you move to that contingency frequency, that is there to enable friendly link up and to get you picked up. Your objective at that point is to get out of the area because if you're facing an adversary that has the electronic warfare sophistication to jam you. You and, and, and they've mapped you out to your primary and alternate frequencies. It doesn't matter, you know, what other enablers you're using. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, whatever digital encoding you're using or, or whatever at the tactical level. It doesn't matter. Okay. If they are sophisticated enough to, to circumvent your primary and alternate means of communications, your objective at that point is friendly link up, is to get out. All right, link up at, a, at an RV site and get extraction. Because if they are that sophisticated, then they have you beat on the ground, period. Period. End of story. Now, that's if, and of course, we know that electronic warfare, psychological warfare, these are both force multipliers. These are both enablers. And they absolutely are. But folks, I'm, what I'm stressing to you and, and what, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure that you would agree is that we don't have the precious numbers to waste on what maybe might happen. Our contingency plan moving to to the sea in a contingency is to get out of that area, is to uh, initiate personnel recovery. And it's better to take a step back, analyze what our adversary is actually capable of doing and what their real threat actually is because it's obviously different than what we anticipated before we go stepping off off again what say you uh i agree with that a hundred percent um if you if you have an unexpected uh phenomenon on the battlefield and uh it's affecting everybody like communications then really you know activating your pr plan is you know personal recovery plan is what's going to have to happen there you can't fight without communications it's just going to be disastrous. It's a mass, it's a mass cow waiting to happen. So yeah, for sure. If nobody can communicate, go ahead and do your PR uh, and get out of there. And then that has to become like a priority intelligence requirement. We have to find out what this is and start studying that problem so that we can develop a counter countermeasure to it and that whole cycle there. Uh, so that that's something that that has to happen. And uh, yeah, you're you're right. So, you know, it, 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 again, 
that's why I love interviewing you. I mean, it, it's it, it's so it's very refreshing to hear another soul in the world that that understands all these principles in practice. Uh, oh, oh man, it, it with the last fifteen minutes of the show, let's let's kind of revisit what we were talking about in the very beginning. With you know, we we talked about the very real insurgency that is occurring here in the United States, what we are seeing, um, ways and means to, to move forward, um, on the right. And, and, you know, we've talked about what we see out of the left. I know that these things are, are extremely difficult to predict, but yet at the same time, they do all follow a pretty general model. And in understanding the threat model that we face here in the United States, what do you think is by, I would say, by September, October timeframe, given what we see, all of the social pressures that are beginning to intersect, the consumer price index is through the roof. You know, we have approaching $5 a gallon for gas, for regular gas. This is just an unfathomable amount of money for a lot of people. And they're being faced with some very real uh, serious decisions that they have to make. You've got food that's going to begin to skyrocket. We've got diesel fuel prices, which are going to cause everything to inflate. If you will, from strictly from the insurgency paradigm, how do you think that these, these social fractures, these social forces are going to play into what we see in the near future? So here's a, I, I just sent this like chat out to, uh, you know, a correspondent of mine uh, who runs a very popular uh, rightist website. But I said, uh, in the 1980s, we had, we had inflation, but the, this, the domestic situation was a little more homogenous and people still believed in America. And we had that sort of unifying principle. And there was also the Cold War. So there was that as well. And media was centralized. So remember, we had the discussion about media stovepipes and shutter control and narrative creation. So, but that, all of that's gone. So we are not homogenous uh, as, as we were. There's really no other enemies for distraction. Uh, there's no like Cold War now. Maybe Ukraine will turn out to be something, but I don't think so. Uh, we have decentralized media and there's obviously a condition of domestic instability and there's a spectrum of instability there. So with this inflation, I don't, I, I just see this like convergence of it getting worse um, because now people are going to be even more stressed. Society has become even more, you know, uncivil to one another. And uh, I think that's just going to amplify. Now, I don't think, you know, I'm not going to say that we're going to be at a, I don't think we're going to have like some central point where there's going to be conflict. It's just going to evolve into more and more conflict. And um, that's that's the this, that's the distant future, uh, you know, by, uh, you know, by October, things are going to be like this. They are now, but things are just going to cost a little bit more. Um, and people will actually probably like the middle class will have compensated for it. And the only people we you know talking about it will probably be the press. But. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just that this inflation is just another uh, another stressor on the social organism that's going to on the domestic organism that's going to create more conflict. So conflict's not going away. It's just going to keep evolving and there's just going to be more. And I think really one day we're going to be watching the news it, here. Here's how the far here's. Mark's and way Mark's forecast. You're going to be watching the news, and you're going to have like a BLM riot, like whatever that one was in Minneapolis that caused a bunch of damage, and it's going to go on for a couple of days, and then you're going to get tired of it, and then you're going to go back to the news, and you're going to say, "Hey, you know what? It's been like two weeks, and that hasn't stopped yet." And then the paper, what the news is going to show you this picture, where it's actually gotten larger, and then another one is starting up in like California. And you'd be like, oh, well, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's going to be a slow evolution, um, low intensity conflict with uh, parts of that being insurgency, because the anarchists who actually don't like, you know, the contemporary Democrats either are going to keep, you know, doing what they're doing. And we'll see like what the far right and the right does. Uh, but the economic stresses induced by inflation will uh, are, are certainly going to negatively affect the national fabric uh, over the long term, because it takes like 
years to recover from inflation. It's not like it just goes away and we're back to normal. And, um, you know, everybody's very angry right now. And inflation does nothing to uh, pacify the angry people. And that's uh, that's going to happen. Plus, you know, the United States is no longer number one. You know, we are a nation in decline. Nobody (laughs) nobody really people can see that we're, we're going in a certain downward direction. And I think you know, that is the convergence of factors that you that you referred to. Uh, it's just going to keep eroding away. So like in the, you know, in the in October, it's not going to necessarily be really bad. It's just going to be more, but a little worse, like maybe two or three percent worse than what it is now. And, you know, the next October, two or three percent more. So you know, over the 18 months, it'd be like six percent. It's just going to continue to erode. That's where we're going. And then at some point, there'll be these like flashpoints, you know, and then it'll be Serbia. But American Serbia, right? <laughs> yeah, that that's that's my contention too. Is is that essentially there's there's not going to be balkanization without a major economic force propelling it, some sort of interest propelling it, and because that that's the way that it always works. You know, Croatia split off from the larger Yugoslavia. They had the most coherent coastline, and that's why there was a war fought over it. Um, you know, they, they they had an economic interest to leave. They said, we can do better economically than than we're doing right now. And they, they were correct in that, you know, and, and that was what started the, the balkanization, if you will, of Yugoslavia and continued to do so all, all throughout the 90s. We're going to see that here in America, too. And. Um, you know, in, 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 I would say that in the Southeast, the Southeastern United States, or the traditional South United States is probably the best equipped to deal with the aftermath of a breakup. We have the largest continuous warm water coastline really in the world. We have the the capacity to have our own energy independence um the military weapons manufacturers are all primarily based in the southeastern united states now um i think that in the near term economically it would be there would be great hardship there's going to be great hardship there already is great hardship i mean we, we can't fool ourselves but the southeastern united states appears at least and it's not going to be without its problems i'm not saying it's going to be a better roses at all but it stands the best chance long term if it comes to balkanization. What what would be your answer to that and, and what would be your assessment of that statement? I'm glad you asked. Uh, so I look, I've looked at the southern states. Oh, I've been stationed at uh, you know Fort, Fort Benning and I'm pretty familiar with the area down there. And you're right. I look at the southern states as a place to move to. You know, for the coming conflict, if you don't want to move to Idaho or one of those places, then, you know, the American uh, Southeast, uh, the Carolinas, are a good choice. And here's why. Uh, They have better growing seasons there. Uh, It's in a different, what is that, plant hardiness zone? So a a better plant hardiness zone than up north. There's abundant water there because you have the Appalachians right there. And the Appalachians, Appalachians, Appalachistan is a very defensible place. Um, so that's, you know, like our American, that's like the, uh, you know, Eastern readout. And most importantly, yep. uh, you have plenty of water and you have enough arable land that sustainable agriculture, not industrial agriculture, but sustainable agriculture can be affected. And, um, those, and, and it's in a good agricultural zone. So agriculture, uh, water, and defensible space is where we're at with like the Carolinas. I think that's solid. And plus we have, you know, the Appies over there as well, which is actually the source of a lot of that water. So that's my answer. Yeah. You know, that that's the biggest thing. And, and I teach classes all across the United States. I've been to every microclimate in the United States, uh, taught and save for Alaska and Hawaii. Um, and I've had a couple of people that wanted me to come to Alaska, but it just, it wasn't economically feasible to do so. Uh, but you know, it, it, I lived in Hawaii for a time and, and, you know, I mean, that goes without saying that that's going to be when it comes to peer on peer conflict, 
that's going to become either its own uh, autonomous place for a time, much like Puerto Rico, but it's going to be a vassal state of of China. That that's I mean it, it is going to that that is going to occur. Uh, so. You know, when it comes to examining regions, I mean, you know, you, you bring up water and agriculture. There is no climate that I have taught in, that I have uh, worked in, that is more sustainable long term than the southeastern United States. It's it's just a f- fact. Um, and in talking about Appalachistan, there is a a culture, a social cultural factor that goes into that as well. That you know, and there's been there's been definitely a lot of changes that have been made uh, to it over the years, over the past couple of decades, essentially, uh, you know, with, with the influx of a lot of uh, people from other regions moving in. However, that dominant culture that still exists there is going to continue to do so. And that's not going to go away. Um, but agriculture and sustainable living, sustainable development, we're going to fare the best. Out of out of all this, out of this economic upheaval, and there's going to be a lot of other areas. I mean, and we have Nevada right now. We have a portion of Nevada that is quite literally running out of water, and we're we're going to begin to see these areas that have sprang up out of nowhere. You know, in in parts of Arizona, parts of Nevada, parts of Utah, which were not sustainable for large numbers of people without a huge amount of terraforming. And that's not going to be a sustainable model long term. And and if there is no infrastructure, economic infrastructure that's backing it up, those people are going to be in a world of hurt very, very quickly. Um, I think personally, I think there's going to be large portions of, of California that are going to be in a lot of trouble uh, sooner rather than later. Um, they, there's there's a lot of warning signs there. And I don't just mean social warning signs, but but agricultural warning signs as well. Uh, yeah. So like California, Southern California uh, was one of the great miracles of the post-war era in the 1950s um, and bringing water from what is it? Is, is it the Colorado or the Rio? Anyway, uh, yep. it's largely yep. it's it's it, ha- it has enormous agricultural output, but all of it is very artificially sustained by that life giving water that no agricultural uh business can maintain without. So I think that's very true. It's something to look at. I mean, because without that water, Southern California uh, goes back to the desert. So that's why wherever people relocate to um, um, water and, uh, you know, agricultural uh, profitability, if you will, uh, is key because sooner or later, you know, if it's just say a worst case where it was a national grid down and you have to produce your own food, that's when like arable land becomes very important. And with that water, you can't live without water. You know, we can go a couple of days without food, but we can't live very long without water. So um, wherever people decide to migrate to make sure it has some kind of agricultural potential, not necessarily commercial agriculture and make sure it has plenty of water. You know, when somebody goes to get a piece of property somewhere, I'm like, Hey, have you looked at your water rights? Are you allowed to drill a well there? Cause if you can't, it's not really that valuable. <laughs> so yep. in the Southwest, or I'm sorry, the Southeast, you know, provides all of that. And um, I think maybe that wouldn't be a bad choice for people looking to relocate on the East Coast who don't want to make the big push to the West Coast. Now, I've lived in, um, you know, I've lived in uh, New Mexico and I've lived in Utah. Um, And I, you know, again, like Utah is a great, you know, place that has an interesting culture, but it's all artificial. It's a desert and they have to bring all of that uh, to labor. But um, you're right. Southeast is definitely shaping up to be the go-to location for people that want to push west. And it's inherently defendable. It's inherently defendable. And, and you know, the, the just looking at long term, I mean, Croatia, if, you know, revisiting the balkanization, Croatia split off first for a reason, and they had the largest coastline. There was a reason for that. Uh, there, there was a reason for all of those things. There's a reason that Croatia continued to do well after the balkanization process. Economically, they did quite well, and they continue to do so. Um, you know, it, it, it's they, there is a reason for all that, and it's that that long-term thinking, uh, generational thinking versus you know between the commercial breaks. But anyhow, 
Wow. With that said, brother, we are coming up on one hour. It is, man, uh, amazing, uh, amazing how fast an hour goes. Thank you for being here with us again. Oh, thank you for, for having me on the show again. It, it has been great. And I, I like talking with you and I like, you know, talking with people who have the same interest and kind of see the same future. So, yeah, it's been great. Amen, brother. Amen. Well, hey, God bless you. Thank you for being on. Everybody out there, may God bless you all. Continue to do wonderful things out there. Get organized with your neighbors. Get active. And again, and you know, going back to what we said in this podcast, there is no politics without discipline. I absolutely love that phrase. Thank you for being on with us, sir. Thank you. God bless all of you, and I'll talk to you again very, very soon. Zensi Scout, out. Back away!